and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text for this morning's message is taken from the Gospel of Mark. You may be seated. We begin with the word of prayer. Almighty God, in your mercy, you have gathered us here to receive your word and sacrament to strengthen us in our faith and to sustain us into life everlasting. But Lord, we do come here today confessing to you that oftentimes our faith is weak and it wavers. So we pray, Lord, that in our unbelief, you would help us. Grant us grace to trust in you and always give us your Son, Jesus Christ. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. The whole scene was one big chaotic mess. Jesus is coming down the mountain. Now, if you read through the Gospel of Mark, you'll see that the story that took place just before what we heard this morning was the story or the account of the mountain of transfiguration where Jesus and James and John and Peter were up on this mountain and they saw Moses and Elijah and God the Father came down in this holy and terrifying cloud and the whole scene was so, was so holy and frightening and awesome and glorious. And then they come down the mountain and they walk in to this chaotic mess where Jesus finds his disciples sort of in a defensive and baffled position arguing with the religious leaders, that is the scribes of the day, who are accusing them in their failure. Upon further examination, Jesus finds out that there's a father there who has brought his son to be healed by Jesus, only to hand him over to the disciples, and the disciples made an entirely huge mess of it. The boy is not being healed, and actually very soon we find him writhing on the ground, being oppressed by this demon. And you've got to imagine the father is sitting here thinking to himself, if the disciples can't help me, what good is the master going to be for me? So the whole scene is full of unbelief and accusation and, and faithlessness and fear and sin. And when you walk in on a scene like that, when you see things falling apart like that, who do you turn to for help? Where do you go for help in such a chaotic situation? It's the sort of question we ask ourselves, I think, even today. Because as it turns out, things don't seem to be a whole lot less chaotic in our world. Yesterday was the 20-year anniversary of September 11, 2001, where terrorists saw fit, uh, terrorists who hate our country, saw fit uh, to fly planes into some of uh, our most important landmarks of American power. They felt it was their holy duty to attack our nation. It was one of those jarring realizations for me in my early 20s. I was, I was about 21, I think, at the time. And it was one of those jarring realizations that America is not invincible. Perhaps I was naive. But I realize now that there are people out there who hate us, who can attack us in dangerous and terrifying ways. America is not invincible. Just look at the depleted New York skyline. And for those of us who were alive at that time, and remember, it is still odd to look at the New York City skyline. Well, here we are 20 years later, and I think I can say quite safely <laughs> that the chaos hasn't gone away. But now in our country, we're not just being attacked from the outside, but we're being divided from within. We've had a pandemic for the last year, a pandemic in which 
people have a variety of responses to. Some people are afraid of the disease. Some people are afraid of what it's going to do to the hospital. Some people are afraid of the government overreaching their power and trying to take control of everything. And in all of this fear, how do we treat one another? We divide and we attack and we slander and we hate. At times like this, people will often turn to the church for help. But I fear that's not any better. Too often we in the church look like the bumbling disciples who decide it's time for us to take matters into our own hands and make it our responsibility to fix all the problems in the world, only to make matters worse. If you think I'm wrong about the church making matters worse in the world, all you need to do, uh, and I don't actually recommend this, uh, take my word for it, but you can go to Twitter and look up the word ex-evangelical and watch the modern-day scribes rip and slander the church for all of her failures, all of her sins, and all of her shortcomings. I mean, our world right now looks an awful lot like that faithless scene that Jesus has walked in. It hasn't changed a whole lot. So where do we go for help in such a chaotic world like this? Well, I mean, the answer is obvious. You're like, oh, it's going to be a short sermon. Not so fast. The answer is obvious. The answer is Jesus. Of course we turn to Jesus for help. And we, of all people, should know this, that we are to turn to Jesus for help. After all, we know Jesus. He is the one who died on the cross for all of your sins. He is the one who rose again to conquer death for you. He is the one who, who forgives you and who baptizes you and calls you his own. And you all have been with him long enough to know that he is the one who has promised to make all things right. He is the one who says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will, uh, I will deliver you. And you and I well know that we are supposed to look to Jesus and to trust in him. It feels like everything is falling apart. So the real que uh, pressing question for us today is this. Why don't you? Why do you look away so quickly why do you fix your eyes on the terrifying and fearful situations around you and not on Christ? Why do you trust the fear-mongering of the media and the politicians over the promises of the Lord? Why do you demonize your political other instead of pray for them as Christ has called you to do? And why do you trust more in your party being in power than trusting that Christ Jesus is Lord? Why do you not trust Jesus as much as you claim to? And why do you try and fix all the problems by taking matters into your own hands? It is undeniably true that we live in a sinful and chaotic mess of a world. And it is equally, if actually you probably better say, it is more so true that Christ is risen from the dead and he will return to make all things right. But quite frankly, I think you and I have grown impatient. Jesus has been up on the mountain for far too long. It's time for him to come back, and he's not really being very prompt. So it's time for us to take control, to take matters into our own hands. This only makes matters worse. Let's look at how the disciples act in the account today. The Father comes, and actually I think as you, as you read this account uh, from the Gospel of Mark, the Father comes in faith. He comes to see Jesus to have his son healed. But as I mentioned, Jesus is up on the mountain. He's nowhere to be found. But the disciples are thinking to themselves, you know, we don't really need Jesus for this one. 
If you read through the gospel, in fact, if, if you listen to the morning devotion tomorrow, where we're going through Mark, uh, you'll hear this account where Jesus says to his disciples, I give you authority to preach and I give you authority to cast out demons. And so they actually go out and they do it, and they do it in his name. But now this father shows up here later in the account with this, with this son who's struggling with this demon. And the disciples look at him and they say, well, Jesus is nowhere around. Hey, man, don't worry. We got it. We do this all the time. And you can just picture them saying to themselves, we don't need Jesus for this. We, this guy doesn't need Jesus. He has us. And you know what? I bet Jesus is really going to be impressed with our work when he comes back down. See what we did without him. That'll really show him something about us. And so the father brings the son to the disciples, and you can just picture, I don't know, one of these disciples like Andrew or something like this going, bring me the boy. And he puts his hands on his head and he goes, be gone, foul beast. And then the head starts shaking and Andrew's like, eye opens up. He's like, uh-oh, <laughs> uh, this isn't going well at all. And suddenly his confidence turns into speaking a little bit louder, turns into anxiety, turns into straight fear. They couldn't cast it out. Later on, after the account finishes, and I'll spoil the end for you, Jesus fixes the situation. But at the end of all of this, they're leaving, and the disciples come to Jesus, and they say, what was, what was, why couldn't we cast it out? What was the problem? And Jesus tells them, he says, listen, that's the kind of demon that only comes out through prayer. Now, what Jesus doesn't mean there is something like this. You should have made the sign of the cross at a few Hail Marys, and the thing would have run away. That's not what he means. What he means is that prayer is the voice of faith. And faith never trusts its own ability. Faith never trusts its own accomplishment. Faith never looks to itself. Faith is not belly gazing. In fact, faith isn't even sure if it has a belly. Faith looks to Christ. So prayer is the act that trusts Christ to make all things right. And the problem with the disciples here was they had no faith. They were trusting in themselves. And that's what was the problem. They were there to give that child Jesus and to drive the demon out with the word of Christ. Instead of preaching Christ, they tried to do it themselves. I mentioned earlier here in the sermon about ex-evangelicals. I've been doing a lot of reading about this lately about people who kind of grew up in the church or came to the church somewhere along the way and have now rejected the church in, in, in some pretty, like, um, aggressive way. And I wonder to myself, and a lot of us are asking the question right now, why are people leaving the church? Why are they rejecting the church so vehemently? And I think sometimes it's because uh, the church preaches the Word of God and people don't like the Word of God, they don't want to change, they don't like being called sinners, that sort of thing, and so they leave. I do think there's some of that. But I also wonder if sometimes people don't come to the church like this father, looking for Jesus. They come looking for help. They come looking for healing. They come looking for forgiveness for their sins and restoration from their shame. They come seeking Jesus. And initially, they get it. But along the way, their sins don't just quit like that. Their struggles don't just automatically disappear. And, and, and the church begins to worry that they've done something wrong, and so they realize, hey, maybe we need to stop preaching forgiveness to this person, and we need to start fixing them. And so they set Jesus aside, and they stop forgiving, and the church starts prescribing. Do more. Fix this. Cut that off. Don't do that any longer, and then your problems will go away. And then they fail. 
And the church says, and I, I've literally read accounts of this, where the church looks at the person and says, well, maybe it's just because you don't have enough faith. It's your fault. Or they look at the person and they say, maybe God has just rejected you. So Christ is removed altogether, and we can't pull it off. We simply just leave the person there to walk away, writhing on the ground in their sin. I think the church needs to remember, and I think you and I need to remember, our role here is not to save the world, but to announce the one who has, and to deliver his work, and to preach his gospel, and to deliver his forgiveness, and to do it again and again and again and again, no matter how long it takes. It's our job as the church to be the place where Christ is delivered freely for the forgiveness of sins and then to get ourselves out of the way. So let's do that now. Let's take our eyes off of all of this stuff and let's now look at Jesus and let's see what Jesus actually does in the text today. Let's look back and see Christ. So here comes Jesus and he walks down into this mess. And you know there had to be the temptation there where he sees the argument and he's like, you know, maybe I do want to go back up on that mountain. That was kind of nice, but he doesn't do it. He walks right into the message. And as he looks around, he begins to see the scenario. Nobody is looking at him. The scribes are looking at the church or the disciples and accusing them and helping no one. The disciples are looking at themselves trying to figure out what went wrong. And the father is looking at his son writhing on the ground. And Jesus, at least initially, it's always kind of troubled me here, Jesus isn't initially that helpful. He shows up and he starts to sound like a doctor in a doctor's office trying to diagnose the problem. Well, how long has the boy been doing this? As he's like foaming at the mouth. What seems to be the trouble here? How long do I have to put up with this? Bring the boy to me. And you're like, you know, you could do something about this, Jesus. But he just sits there and he does. So it gets to the point now where the father, you can just see him staring at his son, worried and terrified at, at, at what the demons are doing. And he says, look, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And at this point, Jesus now has got him where he wants. And at this point, Jesus says something that stops everyone short. He says, if you can... All things are possible for him who believes. And that's it. That's the problem. Everyone sort of, you read this and it's like everyone stops and realizes here's what's gone on. Nobody here believes. Nobody in the account is looking to Christ. Nobody trusts him. This is precisely the problem. Nobody trusts Jesus nearly as much as they want to say they do. And I think Jesus waited so long to heal the child because he's kind of like a teacher in class where the class is like out of control and yelling and no one's paying attention. And so the teacher just kind of stops saying anything and stands there like this, waiting. Until the class realizes, oh, it's, it's their turn to speak, not ours. And now that he's got their attention, Jesus sees the crowd coming. And he looks at the boy and he heals. You see, this is the problem. Jesus gets everyone to the point where they realize there is no belief here. Nobody's looking to Christ. And he finally gets the Father to say the one true prayer, like the truest prayer in all the Bible. The Father finally takes his eyes off his son and looks at Jesus and goes, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
And there it is. Jesus preached the Father right back to the truth. That the only hope here is Jesus, and everybody else is looking somewhere else. They're dwelling on the devil's work, they're looking at their own failures, they're pointing out the failures of everyone else, and no one's looking to Christ. But again, let's not take our eyes off of Christ. Look what Christ does in the text. He never leaves. These people are weak in faith, and they proved it, but Jesus is never weak with mercy, and he is never weak with grace. In fact, this is something to take home today. Jesus is always more gracious than you are faithful. Say that again. Jesus is always more gracious than you are faithful. So though we don't nearly believe as much as we think we do, and though when we take matters into our own hands, we actually start to contribute to the problems around us, Jesus doesn't leave continues to stand there with you, continues to show you mercy, continues to pour his grace out upon you till you get to the point of saying, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus says, now I've got you where I want you. I will help your unbelief. What are you looking at, says Jesus? Look at me. I will help your unbelief because you see, here's the promise. I see you. And I see your sin. And I tell you, you are forgiven. I see your fear of this world. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I see the devil tempting you. I see the devil trying you. But stand firm. For I have delivered you from the evil one. I promise you, I will make all things new. And while you go through this, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you says the Lord. And now you and I are the ones writhing on the ground in our sin and unbelief and basically dead there, and Jesus is the one who reaches down and puts his hand on you and says, I say to you, arise. Your sins are forgiven. You are mine, and I'm not going anywhere. Jesus is always more gracious than you are faithful. And that's a promise you can trust. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your mercy, for the forgiveness and life and salvation you grant to us freely. We do not deserve it. But we do not trust you nearly as much as we claim we do, so help us in our unbelief. Grant us your word. Keep us firm in our faith. We ask this, especially with all that we see in this world right now, Lord, remind us that you've not gone anywhere. You never leave us and you never forsake us.